So obviously this is Palm Sunday. Typically this is the week, obviously, before Easter Sunday, which is next week. We have already read several passages um, that really recount that story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem after raising Lazarus from the dead. All these people think he's the Messiah. They want to make him king. There's all this hubbub. And it's interesting because Jesus keeps giving people these messages that are kind of downers. Like he keeps talking about his death, things like that. We began the worship service today with really the beginning of Jesus' road to the resurrection. In John 11, we read that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And John tells us that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it says, quote, many people believed in him. And so they were kind of, the jury was out a little bit about who Jesus was, but when you raise somebody from the dead, people are going to start listening to what you have to say. But interestingly, in that same passage, John 11, John also tells us that some of the people who witnessed that miraculous event of raising Lazarus from the dead went immediately to the Pharisees of all people. The implication being that their fidelity was to the religious leaders, not to Jesus. Now, interestingly, when these people came to the Pharisees to say, hey, Jesus raised this guy from the dead, the Pharisees' response to this news was very troubling. It should be troubling to us. Instead of believing in Jesus, instead of considering that maybe he was indeed the Messiah, they plotted to kill him when he came to Jerusalem for the Passover. And sure enough, Jesus, against the advice of his disciples, went to Jerusalem for the Passover and was welcomed, as we read just a moment ago, with people laying down palm branches before him and shouting, Hosanna, which was a word that meant uh, sort of a plea to God for salvation. These crowds believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had come to save them not from their sins, not from death, but rather from Roman occupation. That's what they were expecting the Messiah to do. And somewhat anticlimactically, what Jesus' response to them was, uh, interestingly, that he basically said, I'm not going to let you make me king. I'm not going to affirm that kingship. But instead, Jesus responds by insinuating his upcoming death. Jesus then, as we most of us know, went to this upper room to celebrate the Passover with his disciples where he washed their feet, where he prayed with them and prayed for them. And then that evening went to the Mount of Olives where he was eventually betrayed. Many of us know that story. He was then arrested and taken to Pilate. The very crowd that welcomed Jesus on Monday now called for his crucifixion on Friday. Pilate acquiesced to the mob, and Jesus was crucified. We now rejoin the story in verses 31 through 42 of John 19. At this point that we're going to begin reading, Jesus' lifeless body still hangs upon the cross, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 19. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So Deuteronomy 21 uh, clearly states that in Jewish law, someone who was put to death um, or given a capital punishment wasn't allowed, according to Jewish law, to stay on a pole overnight. Now, that was at odds with the tradition of the Romans because usually they let the bodies of the victims of crucifixion putrefy and rot, hanging by the roadside for days on end as a warning to anyone who might try to overthrow the Roman government or simply give them any trouble. In this case, Pilate, however, honored the Jewish leader's request and was willing to, to let them take the bodies of these Jewish criminals down instead of letting them hang there indefinitely. Verse 32. 
The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. This breaking of the legs was typically done by this sort of an iron bar, which was used to crush the thigh bone of someone who was hanging on a cross. What that would cause was um, asphyxiation because they couldn't push themselves up to breathe. And so the soldiers broke the legs of these two thieves, but when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. Verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Now, this witness that we read of here in verse 35 is almost definitely a reference that John is making to himself. In writing in John's letters, he frequently uses or refers to himself in the third person out of humility, but he still wants to assure the readers that there was an eyewitness who saw the soldiers stab Jesus in the side. The implication of witnessing this act was, of course, that no one could have survived such a wound. Jesus didn't just pass out and then revive in the tomb. He definitely died on the cross that day, either by asphyxiation or by this spear to the side. Verse 36, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. These are quotes from Psalm 34 and Zechariah 12. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this moment in our year where we can reflect back upon not only the incarnation of Jesus, Father, but the sacrifice that Jesus made that he willingly embraced the suffering and the death that he faced on the cross for the joy that was set before him, Father. And not only for the joy that was set before him, but so that he might glorify you and he might bring honor to your name. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would join with you in honoring and glorifying your son. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So over the last couple of years, many of us have come you know, face-to-face with our fears. We're familiar with phobias. Um, Probably seven or eight years ago, I ran across some video footage of somebody who had a a phobia of a cotton balls, and there was someone's on TV show, and somebody came out dressed as a huge cotton ball, and they ran off the stage. Um, We're familiar with other phobias that are much more serious, whether, you know, you grew up in the 80s, and it was nuclear war, various things like that. For most of us over the last couple of years, we've looked um, intently on death as it comes in the face or in the, um, the matter of COVID, for example. Several uh, years ago, I ran across an article that listed a top 10 sort of list of uh, fears, and I'm going to read those fears really quickly. Um, and again, this is from something called Listserv, and so I'm not sure that this is a particularly uh, valid or scientific website, but it was interesting. So here are their list of the top 10 fears. Number one, 
fear of losing freedom, or I guess that would be called loss of control as well. There's a scene in uh, The Lord of the Rings where Aragorn is speaking with Eowyn, and he says, what do you fear, lady? And she says, a cage, to stay behind bars until youth and old age accept them, and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. We fear losing our freedom. Number two, fear of the unknown. Number three, fear of physical pain. Check. Fear of disappointing others, fear of misery, fear of loneliness, fear of ridicule, fear of rejection, fear of death. One of my favorite Woody Allen quotes is uh, as follows. He says this, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And then finally, some of us have a great fear of failure. Now, just think for a second and think back over that list. How many of the topics or fears on that list resonate with you? How many of those fears are also your fears? If I'm honest, there are a couple of them that resonate pretty loudly with me at times. And so the question is, what does this passage today have to do with fear? Let's look very quickly at verses 38 and 39. Verses 38 and 39 say this, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. That's in John 3. And so part of what we see in this passage is that our fear is part of what keeps us from following Jesus. Most of us have read this passage and probably haven't thought too much about Joseph or about Nicodemus. So much of the attention around the crucifixion is on Pilate, or maybe it's on Mary or Jesus or John or the other disciples, and so much of the attention is on them that we can easily miss these two figures, Joseph and Nicodemus. The irony is that if we had been Jewish eyewitnesses 2,000 years ago, we might have been just as focused on them, if not more so. Um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would have been celebrities to most of the Jews in attendance. They would have known who they were. They were members of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. And they were wealthy, they were influential, and they were famous. Their presence at the cross would not have been easily missed, whereas most people wouldn't have known who John was or who Mary was. What had been missed up until that point, however, was the relationship of Joseph and Nicodemus with Jesus. We're told in this passage that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And the man who accompanied him to see Pilate was Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. It would seem that both of these men were followers of Jesus, but up until that point had been too afraid to follow Jesus publicly, and to be fair, not without reason. They both had a lot to lose. The religious leaders of whom they were afraid had just orchestrated the crucifixion of an innocent man. Some have referred to Jesus' crucifixion as a lynching. The leaders arrested an innocent man under the cover of night, and they had had him killed. Why? Because Jesus threatened their power structure. He threatened their control. He threatened their authority. He threatened their popularity. And so with good reason, Joseph and Nicodemus hid their curiosity and their faith in Jesus. What were they afraid of? Fear of death? Understandably so. Fear of rejection, at least by their peers. Fear of ridicule, definitely. Fear of losing their freedom, check. Fear of physical pain, disappointing others, loneliness, check to all of those things. But before we judge Joseph and Nicodemus too harshly, 
let's consider that we might not be all that different. We live in Rome, Georgia, but what if we lived in Seattle or in Portland? Would Would we be so quick to publicly follow or associate with Jesus in those places? People would be far more likely to think that we were ignorant or naive for being Christians. And if we're lucky, they would just find our faith a curious and quaint relic of some bygone era. Or what if we lived in China or in North Korea or in Afghanistan? We might literally be risking our lives to follow Jesus. And as the cost of Jesus or following Jesus goes up, the incentive to hide our faith goes up as well. But here in John 19, we see that something happened to move both of these men out of the darkness and into the light. What happened? What enabled them to overcome their fear? Let's look at verses 31 through 33. I think what I'm going to argue is they saw Jesus finally for who he really was, the Passover lamb. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because it was the Sabbath that preceded the Passover. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So it's hard to know exactly what Joseph and Nicodemus knew about Jesus. They knew, surely, that he had raised Lazarus from the dead and that he had performed many other miracles. We know that they knew that he claimed or had claimed to be God. Some of you may remember his before Abraham was I am statement. That statement almost got him killed. We know that they knew of Jesus' prediction of his death and resurrection. And to be fair, like his own disciples, much of this would have been a little bit hazy for them. They would have been trying to figure it out. And as religious scholars, however, they would have undoubtedly seen the Passover implications of Jesus' death as well. In this passage, we see some of these clues. We read about this day of preparation for the special Sabbath. And so, again, it wasn't just for any Sabbath, but a special Sabbath, because it was the Sabbath before the Passover that the Jews would have celebrated once a year. And during the Passover, over a million people would swell into Jerusalem to present offerings in the temple in commemoration of the Jews' rescue from slavery in Egypt. Jesus' crucifixion And his claims surely would have reminded them of John the Baptist's proclamation that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We also read in this passage that they did not break his legs, that is the soldiers. It was specified in Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 that the Passover lamb should not have its bones broken. We read there, it says this, it must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. And as religious scholars, they very likely would have seen this symbolism in Jesus' death. And finally, they would have seen the hyssop branch that we read of in verse 29. A stalk of hyssop plant was used to lift the sour wine to Jesus upon the cross. And again, as experts in the Old Testament, they would have remembered Exodus 12, verse 22, where the Israelites were commanded to take hyssop, to dip it into the blood of the lamb and place it on the doorposts of their homes And in doing so, the angel of death would pass over them. Clearly, both Joseph and Nicodemus were at most or at best curious about Jesus. And again, we're told that Joseph was even an undercover disciple and that Nicodemus had met with Jesus at night to find out if Jesus was really the Messiah. The question is, what exactly happened to move them? We can only assume, but I think 
in part, they finally understood who Jesus was, that he was the Lamb of God, that he was the Messiah. We definitely know that in that moment, Jesus became bigger than all of their doubts, and he became bigger than all of their fears. These two powerful figures with everything to lose stepped out of the darkness, went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Let's look back at verses 39 through 42. We read this. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so Joseph and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus off of the rough wood of the cross. Two rich and powerful and famous men tenderly washed the blood from Jesus' face, from his forehead, from his hands, from his feet, and from his side. They wrapped Jesus' body with expensive linen and with an extravagant amount of myrrh and aloe, the same amount that would have been used for royalty. The NIV says it was 75 pounds worth. And usually criminals were buried outside of the city walls and mass graves, but in this case, we're told in Matthew 27 that they laid Jesus' body in Joseph's very own tomb, and they did this in full view of everyone. It's not necessarily that their fear disappeared as much as something or someone became even bigger than their fears. That's what happens when we decide to follow Jesus. Our doubts and our fears don't necessarily grow smaller, but they're overwhelmed and overshadowed by the beauty of the one who laid down his life for you and for me. This is the same thing that happens, by the way, when a young man gets down on one knee and asks a girl to marry him. He's still scared of getting tied down. He's terrified of losing his freedom. He's frightened about divorce. He worries that he have, won't have what it takes those fears are all still there, but they're swallowed up and overwhelmed in the transcendent beauty of the woman. John Lennon once said, there are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. And whereas I don't agree with them on many things, I will buy that. Those are two pretty core motivating uh, forces, fear and love. The same thing is true for us with Jesus. We all have doubts. We all have fears. But when we see, when we look and see that Jesus willingly laid down his life for us to forgive our sins, to bring us back into a relationship with God, to conquer death, to conquer sin. He becomes so beautiful to us that we are compelled, like Joseph, like Nicodemus, to step out of the darkness into the light and to choose him above all else, no matter what it costs. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story today. It's not simple, but it is clear, Father, that these two men made a choice to publicly follow your son. Father, these two men willingly decided to pursue your son Jesus and to associate with him, even knowing that there was going to be a cost for their faithfulness to him. Father, I pray that today we would see their example and that we would be moved also to do the same, to publicly step out and to follow your son, Jesus. And Father, I also pray, um, and more importantly, I pray that we would see your son, Jesus, who laid down his life willingly for us so that you would be glorified 
so that we would be forgiven and so that our relationship with you would be restored. Father, I pray that the beauty of Jesus would surpass all other beautiful things in our lives. And Father, I pray that as we see the beauty of your son Jesus, that our hearts and our minds and our lives would be transformed as we follow him. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.